If you've been with us on this journey over this school year, today we're hitting week 38 of a 40-week journey through the New Testament, and we're coming to a passage today. It's James 2. It's what we looked at at this confession thing, and uh, guys, I want to circle back into it today because there's a couple things happening here. One, there is this absolutely profound thing that God has to say, and unfortunately, what he has to say tends to get completely sidelined in Christian churches today. And I'm going to show you what the sideline issue is first before we circle back to to some of the more profound things that I think God has to say. I'm going to invite you to open with me to James 2 today and to kind of keep it there because we're going to be referencing this throughout today. And I want to point things out to you and, and, and help you thread some things together. If you go to James 2... Let me show you the landmine, all right? It's at 2 verse 24, and this is what it has to say. It says, you see, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Again, a person is justified, you know, called right before God, made righteous, righteous before God, in good standing with God. A person is Righteousified before God by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, maybe you're here today and it's kind of like first time to, to really church. Um, or, or maybe, you know, you've had some experience with it, but, but you haven't really immersed into it deeply. And, and, and you know, my bet is you're going to read something like that and it's going to feel really no-brainer here today. Well, of course. I mean, we're righteous by what we do. We're righteous by what we show. We're, you know, here's the problem. And it's the problem that people who have been immersed into, into Christianity and church world for a long time, it, it's what causes them to sideline this passage and it's what gives them hives. All right? I want to show you some other things that the New Testament has to say about how we get righteous with God, how we're made right before him, right justified or justified. Are you with me? All right, I'm going to let you read these on your own, okay? Here's one. Just read it. All right, you got it? Here's next. Got it? Here's another. You want another? Too bad, you're not getting it. But this could go on and on. There are slide after slide after slide that we can put up here of, of verses. And if you're reading closely and thinking of James 2.24 in your head right now, are you seeing the issue? Are you seeing the landmine? Out of one side of its mouth, the Bible seems to say, wait a minute, you know, no one's justified before God by the law, by doing good things, by, by observing the commands. We're justified by faith. We're made righteous by faith, right? And then James comes along and he goes, man, I got to tell you here, it, it's not by faith alone. A man is justified by what he does. And it's at this point that anyone who's like evangelical, you could just see like the welts breaking out on their neck and they start to itch. You could tell them right now, look around, they're probably doing this somewhere on their body. And it's unfortunate because the debate, the issue of like, well, how does this mesh with the rest of the New Testament? How does this fit? And the fear of contradiction and the fear of all of this, it ends up completely sidelining something absolutely profound 
that God has to say. And so what I'd like to do with you this morning is is dig into James chapter 2. And through it, maybe with fresh eyes, hear just a little bit of something profound that God actually has to say. Are you with me? All right. Now, the entire letter of James... This entire book of the Bible, if, if we can call it that that, that, that this passage comes out of, the entire letter is really occupied with an idea that, that God's word transforms. So that when God speaks and we come into contact with God's word, it actually does something. See, this is very different than how many people approach it because I think a lot of people go, good information, good insight, like what you have to say, or or maybe not, as though it's just words on a page. But the biblical idea has always been that when God speaks, when, when God says something, it is not just information. That that it's actually at work. One way that like one of these prophets will put it, he's like, you know what God's word is like? It's like rain. It's like it comes down from heaven and it waters the ground, and it isn't just to make it muddy, it brings life. God's water is like snow. It keeps piling and piling, and we can identify this winter, right? And piling and piling, and it just slowly seeps in, and it starts to do its work, and they go, this is what God's word is like. And this is what James is like riveted on. God's word has the power to transform power to transform a heart, a mind, a person. Now track this with me this morning. I want to show you how James will kind of flush this out. If you still got it open, God bless you. I love you. If you don't, shame on you. Chastise yourself later. James 1, okay? 118. James is going to set up a dichotomy here, all right? He's going to, he's going to compare two things that are trying to transform you. I'm going to back up to uh, 13, excuse me. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. I'd like to say that, but we shouldn't. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has what? Conceived. Okay? Desire is a mama. It conceives. Does what? It gives birth. To what? Anything good? No, it's like Damien or something. You know, it's like sin. And, and, and it gives birth to sin. And when it's like full grown, it becomes death. On the other hand, don't be deceived, brothers, because every good and perfect gift is from above. God gives good things. It comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give, see it again, birth. Through what? The word of truth. That's what James is about, that we might become a first fruits of all he created. And what he's saying is this. There are two forces at this world, two things that are seeking to transform you. On one side... There's your evil desires and, 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 and the desires that you have that are trying to tempt you and entice you and lead you to this thing called sin. And what it wants to do is it wants to give birth. It wants you to be reborn into this thing 
that's horrible and ugly and painful called sin and death. But God is here on the other side. And what he's doing is he's pouring out his word. And through his word, he's also trying to transform. And this transformation is so complete, it's so overwhelming that biblical writers can only call it rebirth. You know, it's one thing to say someone changes, right? It's another thing, isn't it, to talk about that change being so drastic that only born again can capture it. And so James is getting at this idea. God's word is out there, and it's trying to do something. It's trying to transform you. It's trying to recreate you and make you a first portion, first fruits, it says. The idea, just the beginning of what God is trying to remake and restore and transform in this world. You following on this? Now, he'll say other ways a little bit later. He'll go on and he'll write in verse 22, do not merely listen to the word, right? Don't treat the word like it's just information. Do what it says. Because if you don't, he says it's like looking in the mirror. You look in the mirror, it's like looking in the mirror and then going, oh, cool. And then you walk away and you forget what you look like. Now, I know a lot of us in this room would love to have that kind of moment. But James is saying, don't do it. It's it's stupid to not do what the word says, to not let it transform you, misses the entire point. This world needs far less Bible scholars. This world needs far more people who are willing to do what it says. Are you with me? And James does not say this as a good idea. You you ever around those people that just kind of, it's like, you actually practice what you preach, dude? Like, like every Sunday, right? Um, but, but are you with me? You ever around those people that just like are filled with good ideas, but it never seems to take root in them personally? What I love about this little letter called James is he's a guy that tasted firsthand and experienced what it's like for the word to transform. Now, Stick with me on this. It can be a bit confusing because there's at least three Jameses in the New Testament. You know, apparently moms were facing a shortage of boys' names in the first century. So uh, there's at least three, and I want to talk to you about them and, and, and who wrote this. The first James is this, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And not any one of the 12, one of the inner three of Jesus' 12 disciples, there were three that were really close to him. There was a guy named Peter, and then there was two brothers named James and John. Now, these were the guys who were the fishermen, the guys that, that Jesus called out of the boat. You know, you remember the story. Drop your nets, come follow me. And, 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 you know, dad's like, you kids, you know, that one right there. This is that James, and he traveled with Jesus for three years. They were tight. They were close. He got to experience things and see things that the other disciples didn't even get to see. Jesus ends up giving him a nickname, actually, later on, um, Boerges, which really in the nickname Hall of Fame is not ranking near the top. Would you agree? But, but, but Jesus gave it, so we'll go with it, and it, and it means um, sons of thunder. So James and his brother John, he goes, you know what? You're James and John, but I'm calling you sons of thunder. And all that comes to mind to me is like a monster truck rally. It's like, you know, Sunday, 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 sons of thunder will cry. You know, it's just... By the way, um, kids, 
if you didn't get mom a Mother's Day present yet, Monster Truck Rally, top of their list. I'm telling you right now. This James was killed for his faith. He was killed for being a believer in Jesus by uh, Herod Agrippa. Now, do you remember Herod the Great, who wasn't so great? This is the Herod that tried to murder Jesus when he was one or two years old. Okay, Herod Agrippa, who killed James, that's Herod the Great's son. Learned a lot from his dad, it seems. The James who wrote James, well, it's probably not that James. But there's a second James. He was also one of the 12 disciples. He was the son of, uh, of a guy named Elpheus. He's called James, a uh, son of Elpheus, when it lists the disciples. And do you know what we know about James, son of Elpheus? That he was the son of Elpheus, and that's about it, all right? New Testament doesn't say anything else about the guy. It's for that reason that people later on would call him James the Less, which makes Boerges look like just a killer nickname in comparison, doesn't it? I mean, talk about being born with a stigma if your, your mom or dad give you the name, yeah, you're James the Less, you know? I mean, um, don't know anything about this guy. It is probably not that James who wrote it, which to me would just be so sweetly ironical if it actually was. But it's probably not him, and that brings us to a third James. And the third James of the New Testament was Jesus' brother. And when I say Jesus' brother, I'm not talking about like, you know, kumbaya, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm talking about Jesus' DNA, biological, you're Oneg, I'm Oneg, you get the idea? Kind of brother. Did you know that Jesus had brothers? Yeah, four of them, actually, that are listed in the New Testament. And he had a whole slew of sisters, too. All right? And you know what? James grew up mocking his brother Jesus. Not just in some kind of like, oh, I bet, because, you know, brothers do that. No, no, I mean, it actually says it in, in the New Testament. James grew up thinking Jesus was out of his mind. I mean, how, how could you not? I mean, if your brother starts walking around saying, I'm the resurrection and the life, and anyone who comes to me will never die, you kind of think he's off a little bit. Like, dude, I grew up with you, right? And he grew up just kind of like embarrassed. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, maybe my dad ain't your dad, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. He grew up embarrassed, probably ashamed, thinking Jesus was out of his mind. In fact, there's times where it says that Jesus' brother James and his other brothers with him would go to try to take charge of Jesus. Because there he is. He's out preaching again. He's out in the marketplace saying stupid, crazy things. This is really embarrassing. People know us. And they said they would try to take control of him because they thought he was out of his mind. This is the James who wrote James. But it's so cool because something happens. Jesus comes to die, but more importantly, he comes to rise again. I'm not talking some like phantom ghost walk as spirit goes. No, I'm talking flesh and blood. He comes out of a tomb. He comes back to life. He beats death, and he starts showing himself to people. He goes to the women first, the women that followed him as his disciples. And then he goes to the 12 apostles. And then, according to the New Testament, 
he shows himself to James. And I can just imagine he's coming to his brother and it's like, gotcha, you know? (laughs) He shows himself to James. And like it does with all people, when they come face to face with the risen Christ, it changes everything. James becomes one of the, the, like, he's called one of the pillars of the church in the New Testament. One of the top three. The people who are running it, the people who are making it happen, the people who are organizing it. He and Peter are like this. Peter actually even defers to James and seems to look to James as though James is the figurehead, despite the fact that Peter was like the chief disciple who followed him everywhere. Paul gets his commission from James. James is the one who speaks the final words and the final wisdom to answer those questions the early church was facing. It is this James, the brother of Jesus, who was the rock, you know, ground zero of that first revolutionary movement that wrote this little book. And I've got a question for you today. If you had that kind of resume... If you had that kind of street cred, what would you put on your business card? How would you introduce yourself? How would you position yourself with that kind of cred behind you? Let me show you how James does it. He starts his letter by writing this. James a slave of my brother, Jesus Christ. James, a slave. Because God and his word got a hold of James and it did something in him. James came to experience firsthand what it means that God's word transforms and for James, it meant going from one who, who mocked Jesus in disbelief to one who gave his life to him and said, at most, I'm worthy to be called your slave. Because when the word births transformation, the sign of that transformation is faith. You ever kind of get wrapped into this, this like age-old question of like, how do you really know like who belongs to Jesus, who doesn't, who's saved, who's not, who's going to heaven, who isn't? What's the sign? Well, you know, by sign, what's the evidence? What's the thing that shows it? For James... And Paul and all the New Testament writers, the sign of transformation that has been birthed by the word is this little thing that in Christian circles we call faith. For James, faith is that sign that God's word has started to change my heart. And this is what brings us full circle to James 2. Because James knew something back then and experienced something back then that I think we often fall victim to as well today. What's faith? I mean, we talk about it a lot. 
But you know, what is it, really? You know, some people I meet, especially those who have grown up in Christian circles, they seem to get this idea that, that faith is giving a certain you know, sense of internal agreement or, or mental assent. It's like coming across a list of, of, of facts and going, I believe that's true. But not necessarily with anything more than that. Do you understand that, James aside, when Paul and the New Testament writers talk about faith, that's the farthest thing from their mind? See, Paul and James, they were like this. People pit them against each other, but they're two of a kind. They're both radicals. They're both obsessed with this idea that God's word transforms, and when it transforms, it does something to all of you, not just figuring out some answers. It's this idea that, that, that God's call is for us to give him our lives. And when we do, it outflows in everything we are. But James knew back then, I think like we face today, that there's some people that just have the wrong idea of this thing called faith. Some who want to reduce it to ideas, philosophy, maxims, mental assent, and James with the most just, I love how he words this if you're looking at it again. With the most pointed kind of clear thinking ways, he's just like, do you think, do you think that's what it is, guys? How, how does he put it? How does he put it? In 14, he says, can such faith save him? Do you believe that there's one God? Do you believe that his son is Jesus Christ? Do you know that he died on a cross and rose from the dead? Good. You know what? The demons know it too. Probably better than you. But that ain't faith. Because faith at its heartbeat is the result and the fruit of transformation. And when someone's transformed, it just doesn't come out of their mind. It comes out of their heart, their soul, their body, their will. This is why James says faith in deeds. It's one and the same. Faith without works is dead because without deeds, it's like, it's like an empty shell. Saying you believe something without substance inside is like an empty shell. You know what it's like? You ever do this, moms? It's great. Wrap up like a huge box and the prettiest paper for your kid's birthday. Okay? Big bow. Let it sit there for a couple of days. Let them just yearn, what did she give me? And then when they open it, it's like empty. It's hysterical, I swear. Um, but maybe that's the difference between moms and sadistic dads. I don't know. <laughs> Faith without deeds, that's what it's like. It's an empty shell. It's all wrapping and no substance. It's husk and no filler. Because faith, if it's faith is naturally going to want and produce loyalty and sacrifice and commitment and goodness. In fact, James will even clarify it. Look at verse 22. He says this. He writes, You see that a person's faith and his actions, in the case of Abraham here, they were working together. And like Abraham... His faith was made complete by what he did. Like you, your faith will make, be made complete by what you do. This word complete, 
Here's how you say it in Greek, telos, to complete, to accomplish, to finish. It's what Jesus cried out on the cross. Remember, it is finished? Cried out telos, or at least a variation of it. It's accomplished. It's like Jesus going, you know, I'm doing with action the things I've claimed. And our faith is the same. It's meant to complete us. Action and deed and works and these things we do. And it leads to a question that I want to close with today. Do you ever feel incomplete? Do you ever find yourself repeatedly wrestling with a vague sense that something is missing? Do you ever find yourself repeatedly bored? You know, it's just like, no matter what I do, it doesn't bring the same excitement anymore. And and you sit there kind of wondering, even if it's ever so mutedly, there's got to be more than this. Because I've come to discover that there's only so many trendy restaurants you can eat at, so many hundred million dollar blockbusters that you can go and see, so much disposable wealth and entertainment that you can enjoy, so much reading and studying and thinking you can do before it's got to be filled with something more. Deeds, or action as James would put it, are not just the substance of faith. For God, they're meant to be the substance of life. And if you're facing those questions here today, I first want to give you permission to know that it's okay. Because with God, it's okay to not be okay. But with God, it's not okay to stay that way. And might you be sensing that God is looking to fill you and do something through you that is worth so much more. It is the difference for James between life and being an empty shell. the shell of this thing that we call faith was always meant to be filled with the substance of what we do. And I think that the message that God has for us in James is that when God promises life, he really promises it. And not just an idea. He promises that there is something so meaningful and so worthwhile that God is looking to transform within you. That the writers will call, in a holistic sense, faith, in action, in deed, in substance. And guys, it's my prayer for us as a church that faith just ain't a shell 
that it's filled in each of us with something so much more. May God's message of James and his word transform you. Would you rise with me? cool thing about God is he wants us to be hit and come into conflict with his word and at that point to surrender to his way. If you're asking those questions about something more, just I invite you in these next few moments along with me make it your prayer today, okay? Let's pray. Lord, we don't have to ask for your word. You shower it down. How do we gather here? We hear it. We, we, we come across it in our life. I know for me, Lord, it's easy. It's easy to seek so hard to understand intricacies that I can lose sight of the basic, most simple ways of letting it just take root and birth and grow. Forgive us, God, as a people, as a church, as Christians. For when we hide behind a guise of faith and reduce it to nothing more than an empty shell, God, may it come alive. May it pulse within us. May it it produce. May it flow out in what we say and how we treat people and what we do and what captures our hearts in this world. May it move us with compassion and mercy and the seeking of justice. May May it show itself with goodness and generosity with sacrifice and integrity. May it demonstrate itself in loyalty, God. God, to you. Give us faith, we pray. Hear our prayer. Hear our prayer is, well, you once taught the other two James to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.